Welcome to the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast, where we untangle the past, rewrite the present, and reclaim our future. I am your host, Tammy Vincent, and together we will break free from old patterns, heal wounds, and create new narratives. Are you ready to transform the effects of your dysfunctional past into your superpowers? Are you excited to get back in touch with your true authentic self? If so, then hit subscribe and join me weekly on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. Here we will learn from experts as well as experienced thrivers how to turn our trials into smiles while living our most authentic and joyful lives. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adult Child of Dysfunction. Today we have with us George P. Brooks. George is a renowned mental health advocate, public speaker, writer, and CEO dedicated to shedding light on the often stigmatized and misunderstood world of mental illness. Having faced his own struggles with mental illness, mental health since the tender age of seven, George's life journey has been marked with resilience, triumph, and a deep commitment to helping others overcome their challenges. George is the visionary behind Meta Association, which we'll let him tell you all about a nonprofit or organization committed to advocating for and raising awareness around the decriminalization and destigmatization of mental illness. The organization's mission is to create a more compassionate and understanding society that supports those living with mental health challenges. Welcome, George. So glad to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this morning. So just go ahead and tell them a little bit about who George P. Brooks is and tell us about your story. About age seven, I started to recognize that I was having some mental health issues, and my parents got me got me help for that at a pretty early age, which was rare coming from a two-parent Black family household in the South, that they would be uh, forward-thinking enough to not fall into the uh, mindset of, we just need to pray it away, or some old, uh, um, antiquated way of thinking. So that was greatly beneficial to me. Uh, however, uh, me seeking treatment did not absolve me of a lot of what I went through in terms of dealing with my mental health and emotional health and trauma and things like that in life. So uh, over the next, really, uh, from about age seven till about age, really, 45, <laughs> which I am now, uh, I think I went through a process of, of constant, constant uh, struggle with my mental illness, um, diagnosis bipolar, uh, PTSD and DID. And with that, though, I have found a way to cope with it. Uh, I found a way to make things work for me. I found a way to live a productive, fulfilling life. Uh, it is not easy. But I did that through a lot of trial and error. So what I choose to do is having gone through things like a 10-year addiction to cocaine, having gone through things like divorce trauma, custody battle, childhood obesity, weight loss surgery, all these things I've gone through have really got me to the point where I feel like I need to use my trauma and pain to try to help people. So that's why about five and a half years ago, I started my nonprofit Meta Association. We're a registered 501c3 with IRS. Um, You can can donate support at metaassociation.org, which will be our new site up this week. Um, And I I did that to promote three things mainly, uh, black mental health, fighting recidivism and promoting healthier fatherhood. And we've endeavored to do that over the past five and a half years. I have my board of directors in place. Uh, We're working on grant writing, uh, getting donations and initiatives for this year. 
Um, but in that, it, it's given me pause for a lot of introspection and things about the way I was raised and things about my parents in different stages of life's, uh, life that they were in at different times. So I'm kind of at this point and everything that I just said leads me up to meeting with you this morning. So thank you. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, welcome. Well, that's a lot to swallow. And for the listeners out there, we've heard of bipolar, we've heard of PTSD. Can you explain what DID is for those that don't know? DID is, is a dissociative identity disorder, and people uh, used to think of it as multiple personalities, and it's really not what it is. What it is is a response to childhood trauma. Uh, the way I look at mine, it's like my brain shutting down to protect itself, and what it looks like when you enter a uh, uh, an incident of it, you're sort of what's in, in a call of fugue state. You're in control of what you're doing. You're, you're in no way irrational or psychotic. It's just you feel a detachment from yourself. And the way I rationalize it, even on a spiritual level, it's my body protecting myself from something that is going to hurt me emotionally or mentally. So, you know, uh, that's just one of the diagnoses. And it's one of the things I deal with. Um, you, you have to learn. We, 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 when we talk about mental health, we oftentimes forget the health aspect. And we don't, we don't think of it as it being a chronic condition such as diabetes or a heart issue, which both I have. And I understand that if I don't take my insulin, if I don't adhere to my treatment, I'm going to have problems. And it's the same with my mental and emotional health. You have to protect yourself emotionally. That means therapy. That means the physical part, the spiritual part. All those things are in place. But with DID, it's just a response to, to trauma. Uh, it was a, it's a response to being triggered. At least that's what it is in my case. Right. And I, I did an episode not too long ago because we actually had a gentleman on who had the most extreme form of amnesia, the dissociative amnesia, where he actually lost 13 years of his life. Right. And I think, you know, I think like, I've lost a month. I think I've lost a month one time. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. and that's the most extreme form where you're literally like he wrote books, he did journal articles, he came out of it and his family had like lawsuits against against him for defamation of character. And he he literally lost 13 years, but I like the fact that you pointed out because I immediately did a follow-up because dissociating doesn't look like that to everybody. It doesn't look yeah. like losing a month of your life. Sometimes yeah. it just looks like, like in my case, when there was physical abuse being going on, same thing. My mind says, nope, not doing this. And I would literally stand outside and in my mind and watch it happening to me. Like I wasn't there but I was watching. So it's like, it kind of looks a little different for everybody, but you, you know, it's what, what year were you diagnosed? Like how old were you when you were diagnosed with that? Uh, with DID, that was about age 25. 25. 25. Okay. So, so yeah. this, so the trauma that you said, cause you were diagnosed with PTSD, that was just from your normal childhood life. Yeah. Life. If you could call it normal. It well, was interesting. okay. You're, but, you're yeah. normal. <laughs> yeah. Normal for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that was from, because there were a lot of uh, extenuating circumstances in terms of, of dealing with mental health. And the thing that people have to keep in mind is that, you know, even when someone has a diagnosable condition, there's still external factors. There's, there's still extemporaneous things. There's still family relationships, societal norms, all those things that play into that. So you may have someone with a mental illness that they can manage through medication, through therapy, through diet, through spirituality. But they may be living in such chaos that it's not taking. Right. So, so we, you know, you have to understand if you have a diabetic in a house full of obese people that only eat sugar, they're going to be affected by it. If you have a person with a mental illness that's in a toxic environment, abusive environment, 
you know, neglectful environment, you're going to get what you put in, which is going to be probably something negative. So even, I mean, you were, you were right in saying that you were fortunate though, that they at least seeked help because that you're, you're 45 now. So that was, yeah. So you were yeah. born in what, 70 ish. 78. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, that wasn't a norm thing. Like you said, being no, a black no. family in the South, that's not normal. We don't go to psychiatrists. We don't go to right. therapists. We don't do that. So you were fortunate in that you did that. So I can imagine. So the bipolar, they do you think that was the original diagnosis or what was the original? I think so. Yeah. I, I, well, at the time, uh, they didn't diagnose bipolar in people under age 18. Now they do. Right. Uh, I, I think that that's a testament to how far mental health care has come. Um, so mostly I was mistreated in terms of medicinal uh, intervention coming up. I was basically just given. Uh, antidepressants as a teenager and a, as a child, but they weren't treating the other aspects of the mental illness, but that just was not the norm at the time. Right. And and through having these discussions about mental health, you know, hopefully we can propagate a culture where, where there are more advancements in care, different techniques, different avenues for people to get the treatment they need. Absolutely. And I, you know, I was talking to one of my clients the other day and she was so stressed out because she was diagnosed as being bipolar and she's 57. And I was like, so what you know the you know the symptoms yes. you know what you're You've dealing with it. let's yeah. just take away the label stop stressing about the fact that they just gave it another name you know i sent her this little chart where it was like it had a picture of overlapping of adhd bipolar ptsd or cptsd and it literally had all the overlapping symptoms and i'm like they gotta pick one like they just gotta pick one so uh oh, your mic cut out. You muted yourself, I think. Okay, but the, the 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 deal with with mental illness that I really try to do, and we have to do one of these things first and foremost before we can have any appreciable progress or or understanding or real discussion is we have to destigmatize it. Yep. Um, yep. and and people get so hung up on labels. It's just a diagnosis. That's all yep. it is. Yep. If you get diagnosed with alopecia, I mean, well depending on who you are. Uh, it, it's not it's not as earth shattering as it is. It's just giving a name to your condition. Right. And right. by doing that, you kind of can liberate yourself. Now you know what it is. Now you know how to research it. Now you know how to go about treating it and addressing it and coping with it. So we're too afraid of labels in this society and we label ourselves to death. You know, yeah. you just look at, at pronouns, you know, everybody has a different pronoun. So why should this be any different? Especially if it's something that can lead to you having a more productive health life and a better quality of life. Right. And, you know, giving it a label too, kind of, especially when they give a child a label like that. I'm like, now that you like, I'm like, don't ever say to your child, well, you do it because you have ADHD. Right. No, just deal with that. You know what I mean? Like you have the symptom. It doesn't matter what the symptom at what causes it. Don't give it an excuse to misbehave. Don't, you know, don't be like, well, I have ADHD. I can't help it. Well, you just said I have ADHD. So this is why I did that. Right. You were aware you had, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, so yeah. And, and that's the thing too. I think that's why mental illness is, is still so stigmatized because you have so many people that use it as a cop out. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm bipolar, but if I do some, I mean, I, I can only look at myself. There have been a lot of mistakes I've made in my life considering circumstances, but I can't blame them all on me being bipolar. I mean, even bipolar is kind of like when someone gets drunk, they show who you, who they really are. And why bipolar is a terrible, terrible disease to have. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's brutalizing. 
who you are as a as a person and your essence will always ring through no matter what you're going through. So that's why I encourage all people, mental illness or not, endeavor to be better people. Try to treat other people better. That's no matter what you're dealing with. And I can speak for someone that went through a 10-year addiction to cocaine. Through the thoroughs of addiction and whatever trials that God puts in front of us, our character is what remains intact. Yep. And when we lose that and we lose that sense of ourselves, our mental health fails. We, we become more prone to addiction. We become more prone to dysfunctional relationships and destructive self-behaviors. We have to deal with ourselves. And a lot of dealing with ourselves, we get our sense from how we deal with, with people, with communal beings. And if we treat each other better, I think not only will that help us in terms of our dealing with ourselves and our own individual mental health, I think it'll help those living with mental illness. They won't feel as ostracized. They won't feel as judged. Uh, one thing I do when I encounter anyone in, a, in an emotional or mental health crisis, I don't ask them what's wrong. I ask them what are they feeling. Mm -hmm. We ask someone wrong, it, it, it automatically stigmatizes them as though you're a problem. Something's wrong. You use the word wrong. What am I doing wrong? As opposed to what are you feeling? And then they can expound upon what it is they're going through. And you can better help people that way. So it's just a bunch of little techniques that I've learned over the over the years to try to help people and help you know our society. Because we're, we're really seeing now mental health is, is, is on the forefront. And if we really had true numbers of, of the deaths caused by mental illness or its effects, that would be the number one killer of most people, I believe. We don't think about the guy that drove drunk because he's going through something mentally or emotionally. We don't think about the man that let his, his, his heart go to shot because he can't cope with it because it's too much for him mentally and emotionally. And those things happen. So I think if we start thinking in those terms and thinking more so in terms of health and, and not just the mental part, but looking at it as more of a health issue, it'll go a long way toward making things better for everyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell people I kind of joke about it now, but I'm like, you know, when I was 18 and I had bleeding ulcers and was throwing up blood, nobody ever said, well, maybe it's because your mom was, you know, doing drugs and pimping you out and locking you in closets. And no, it had nothing to do with that. It was just the fact that apparently I don't eat well and I should stop eating spicy food. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and it's like. It's good, though. I feel like, you know, now, I mean, you just make it such an easy argument and just put it so simply. It's body, mind and spirit. And they all have to work together. You can't fix right. one without the other. I was just talking on the last episode about about that exact thing. You have to fix them all. You can't just fix your mind because it's stored in your body. You can't just fix your body because then you're you know, you lose the spirituality part of it. It's it's all right. intertwined. So right. and, that's, and, that, and that's the thing in dealing with a lot of people in the clergy. And a lot of people in the churches, they feel as though, it's, first of all, you still have a lot of them that have a quote-unquote slave mentality. So they don't think it's real anyway. They think it's because you have a demon in you, and they think it's because it's all spirits. And sometimes stuff is just biological, people. I mean, stop trying to stop trying to make a narrative onto something that's really, really kind of easy to ex explain the concept of just to line somebody's pockets. Right. Preach me. Preach. I'm sorry. For what I'm about to say, but it's the truth. Preacher man got to get paid. So by virtue of that, if he sees someone in this congregation with a mental illness, he's not going to all, and I'm not saying all, but some are not going to be very, very uh, 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 proactive in terms of telling him to go to a doctor because it's like, that's my racket. That's how I get them. They're right. going through something. That's how I make my money. They keep thinking this and they don't understand. It needs to be a collaborative effort. Yeah. You know, but it, it's about money. Uh, there's treatment in the cure, not that there's a cure for mental illness, but there's treat, there's, there's, there's money in the treatment. 
Right. Uh, not the cure. So something more substantive that could, re could re really relieve people on a longer term basis uh, is not going to be explored. So that's why it's really incumbent upon us to find those short term solutions and coping mechanisms that are going to really, really help us. Well, and you said it exactly right. It's not, you know, you can take the drugs or you can, you know, the antipsychotics and stuff like that, or you can mm -hmm. learn coping skills and practice coping yeah. skills. I know I went through a suicide attempt when I was 16 and they tried to put me on every medicine in the book. And I was like, no, I'm like, I'm having enough trouble like feeling anyway. I do not want to be numb. And I never took one, but boy, it was a struggle. But I was mm -hmm. like, nope, I'm going to sniff my lavender and I'm going to calm myself down. And I'm going to, if I have to sit on my hands when I feel like hurting myself, that's what I'm going to do. But I mean, it was, it was a struggle, but I tried to find, you know, I was deep breathing back then, you know, that wasn't 25 years ago, or actually that was more than that 30 some years ago, there wasn't that big push for yoga and meditation and just being, you know, doing yeah, self-care yeah. self was not a thing. The holistic movement was not a thing. And that if it is, I think you can have better supplementation with the pharmaceutical uh, aspect of treatment, because I do feel, feel as though if someone's going through a situational uh, mental health crisis or emotional crisis, they may not mean to make need medication, but if you have a diagnosable actual brain chemistry offset, some oh, sort yeah. of way oh. you can medication, then that's different. That's and I try totally to make different. sure I differentiate because I'm not an advocate for just throwing anybody on medication. Uh, you have to, you have to, uh, you have to treat and get the maximum result you can out of your natural and holistic efforts before you go to the medication or as, as an adjunct to the medication. So it's 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 it had it takes a con con conglomeration of things to really be successful, and not just in mental health, but just in health in general. Mm -hmm. You have to go to the doctor. You have to eat right. You have to go to the gym. You have to, you know, it's the same thing. And we just thought, as a society just take our health for granted, and especially our mental health because it's not evident. We don't see it, but we feel it every minute of every day. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the one thing there, you know, when, you know, with my bipolar, it may be days I'm just manic. Right. And I know what that feels like. And it's not pleasant. It's not fun. But I found ways to try to be more productive during that time. It's painful. It's right. painful. I have a 19-year-old son that's bipolar. And I, I watched him. He was also diagnosed at age seven. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to, I had to raise him so differently from what I had to raise my other son who does not have a mental health issue. And then you compound that with the fact I'm raising black males and that's a whole other, whole other diaspora of raising that's different because this is be honest and have an honest conversation. Me raising black males dealing with mental health and stuff is going to be different than someone else because there are so many different circumstances, societal circumstances, judgments, stereotypes, things like that. They can't navigate like the same way a white person can. And that plays into mental health. Everything. So it's so much plays in the mental health that we had we need really need to deal with the mental health first so we can get to other issues. And like what I tell people all the time, not dealing with your mental health is gonna keep you broke. You're not gonna be able to maximize your income making potential if you're not dealing with this up here. Right. No matter how many hours you work, you work 20, 24, 28 hours a day. This here and right, you're you're limiting yourself, you're handicapping yep. yourself. Yeah, you're handicapping yourself. And even if you, you know, get the opportunity, you're sabotaging yourself because you're, there's this, yeah, it's absolutely. And I, I love that you said that. And it's the, you're right, it's the conglomerate because I was looking at, so give us an example for the listeners because I know I do have a lot of 
clients and listeners that have been diagnosed with bipolar. So give me an example of like the manic day. Like what would you, what would be some of your coping skills? Well, first of all, before we get to the manic day, <laughs> with bipolar, you do what's called cycling. It means your mood may go way up to where you're manic. When you're manic, you tend to have elevated speeds, a lot of energy. You can be more impulsive. Uh, you have your even keel, which your mood stabilizer will help you out with, which is pretty much kind of like I am now, just in the middle of the road. Or you have your depressive states. And it's just like with my cycling, I'm a rapid cycler with my bipolar, which means my moods may change from minute to minute. Not meaning I'm Jekyll and Jekyll, which is the correct pronunciation. Let me say this. Not Jekyll. It's actually the original Jekyll. authors. Jekyll and Hyde. I'm not that, but um, I can feel it. Yeah. And what I try to do is 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 go accordingly. So when I'm manic, let's say I manic face last two or three days. During that time, I'm usually amped up. Uh, usually feel like you drank a pot of coffee. Uh, you're not reckless. You're not dangerous, but you're moving. You have excess energy. Your mind won't stop. The racing thoughts won't stop. So what I do is I use that time to be productive. I do content. I work on my nonprofit. I try to burn the energy off in a productive, safe way. Uh, I let people that I know that, that they really do care about me, know, so they know, okay, you know, George is having this going on today. I work on my nonprofit. I do podcast appearances, but I find a way to kind of levy that manic energy to where it's not destructive for me. Right. Uh, does not make it easier. Does not make it any less exhausting. Mm -mm. Uh, but it's part of being the bipolar. And on the other spectrum, uh, so that's what, a, that's what a manic day may look like for me. I usually get up pretty early, go pray, um, start reading, uh, get to work all day, spend time with my kids. It's usually, try. I try to make it a regular day. Okay. Uh, but I take extra time to, to lay down and just be still and calm myself. Uh, depressive state, I think my longest depressive state was about a year and a half. So oh, I was wow. in a depression That's about a, a year one. and a half. That was a long one. And it's just part of bipolar. And I'm, I'm an advocate for those with, dealing with real severe mental illnesses like mine to try to start your own business because it's going to be very difficult for you to hold a job. It's going to be pretty, if you have a, if you have an appreciable mental health illness condition, even if you're in therapy, even if you're in care, even if you're on meds, holding a full-time job or even a part-time job for more than a few months is going to be doggone near impossible just because of the ebbs and flows in your mental health. Yeah. There are going to be days where you're not going to, you just, it's just not going to happen for you at work. So that's why I, I endeavor uh, those of us with mental illness that do have the capability to start our own business where we have some flexibility. Uh, I'm trying to work with companies to get, to get them to be more mental health friendly, to allow uh, latitude in things with people that are going through things. You have flare ups. Uh, you have instances that bring forth incidents. So I'm really working toward that. So uh, what I've tried to do uh, is try to foster a culture where those living with mental illness don't feel like they're married to being on Social Security. That's nothing but poverty. Right. Uh, you cannot survive. Most people can't even pay their rent uh, on, on on what they get in disability. So we need to to do things to fortify these people economically, because if you don't do that, if they can't eat and they don't have a place to stay, how dare you ask them to really address their their mental health in earnest when they're trying to survive? They're just in survival mode. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I, that makes thank you for clearing that up for me, because I had a someone that I knew very dearly and what even my mother, I remember asking my mother, you know, why do you do drugs? Like why? And I remember her saying to me, because I know how I'm going to feel. And right. she, that was years ago. And she was a child psychiatrist, mm -hmm. but 
she was an alcoholic. She died of 42 with cirrhosis. So she was a huge drinker, huge. And I remember her saying that to me. And then I remember talking to someone else and I was like, why are you smoking weed? Like, why do you smoke weed? And I remember him saying to me, and it was, you know, same thing. He's like, because I know I stay like this when I'm smoking weed. It's just, he said, yeah, he said, literally, he said one minute I can be happy as can be. And the next minute I literally have an urge, like I want to stab someone with something. And he's like, I never would, but he's like, it's like this. He said, but when I smoke weed, it's constant. I've got a good friend, Chanel Baptiste, out of Austin, Texas. Actually, Leander, she won Austin Therapist of the Year last year. She's like my sister. And we we call it riding the wave. Yeah. That's literally yeah. what it feels like. It, it Like, my son is bipolar, and we always call each other when we're manic. We It's like we're, we're each other's 911. Yeah. If I'm yeah. feeling manic, I did it yesterday. I called my son. I said, son, I'm feeling manic. You got any words for me? He talked me down. Yeah. And the thing is, is that people that go through it have to develop a kinship because we can help each other through it better than anyone. But we also have a duty is is to me, a a person who was a believer uh, to try to use that to help other people. Yeah. And and, and I'm glad you asked me what that was like, because I enjoy questions like that, because it does normalize mental illness. Yes. Yes. It does humanize me. uh, And to the point where people are like, well, I have days like that. Uh, I know I'm not bipolar, but I can see where he's coming from. And that's really what compassion is going to breed from. Compassion breeds from from empathy, from being able to relate to putting yourself in each other's shoes. And that's really what's needed to to help alleviate a lot of the problems we have uh, so, as, as far as a society in terms of not only mental illness, but homelessness and people with the disabled. It's going to start with a voice of dissent and compassion. Yep. And I a hundred percent agree. And it's even like leadership in the corporations. Like, you know, you have are dealing with people that have been through a lot of crap and are still going through a lot of crap. And the yeah. old, you know, iron fist is just not working. People don't react to it. Like they, they, oh, you yeah. know, they don't. And, you know, leading with love is they find that compassionate leaders have a hundred times more respect. You know, it's just. And, and, and I'll say this. If if lead with love means you have to profit, find a way to profit. If you if, if, if I have no problem with people making money, I have no I'm not I'm not a, in any way. Uh, uh, I'm not I don't believe in anti disestablishmentarianism. I just don't. And I so I feel like company, co- co- companies can make a profit. <laughs> Find a way that's going to be constructive and benefit people and make your money that way. Yep, absolutely. And you, yeah, you you can be, no matter who you're dealing with, you can be compassionate and you can have some empathy and you can not be a jerk. Like I just, and everybody, they, you know, they don't need to start teaching that. I remember I was talking to a group of kids one time and I said, okay, anybody that has been hugged in the last 48 hours by someone that cares about them, stand up. And a class, I mean, it had to have been 150 kids and probably maybe 18 stood up. So I was like, okay, look around, guys. I was like, it's your job to pick one of these other kids that's not standing up and hug someone. Because how would you like to, how would you feel if you went 48 hours and never got a hug? And they were like, wow, you know, I never really thought about that. Well, think about that. Like, you don't think people are angry when they don't have connection and they don't feel loved and they don't have anybody backing them up. I'm like, yeah, they get angry. (laughs) You know? So I know that's kind of, kind of off the subject, but when you just talk about compassion and like, let's learn a little compassion and, you know, addiction and alcoholism and and it's a disease and teach it like a disease. Don't teach it like taboo. 
Right. The, the, the onset of addiction in terms of using it to deal with your trauma, I believe, has a clinical approach. But to me, the choice of actually doing the drugs is not a choice. It's not a dis disease. It's a choice because of what you have to do to score. Because my, my compulsion I had to use and to um, dull that pain I had, I could see that being a disease. But when you actually you take the time to get money, to call the call your dealer, to wait on them, to do all the things involved, that really becomes a ritual in addiction. Then it becomes a choice. So it's twofold. And uh, I know that oftentimes people say it's a disease. They spend time arguing about that, but the addiction is a symptom of the disease. The addiction right. is not the disease. It's the no. symptom. It's a symptom. So, and that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong. They're so busy treating the the addiction. They're not treat, treating the trauma that caused it. Yep or that perpetuates it. So uh, that's another thing too. And But I only have the insight because I went through it because God saw fit to have me walk that path. And that's why I'm so passionate about being on shows like yours. And thank you once again for having me is that we have to get an understanding of, of how to really deal with things because I don't think there, you know, addiction is never going to go away. Drugs are never going to go away. No. Mental health is never, I mean, there's too much money in it. And I could get all into the prison industrial complex and all that. <laughs> when it comes to drugs and the war on drugs, but we have to try to stop the bleeding. We know we, we know it's gonna be a wound that we have, but we have to try to min minimize the casualties and collateral damage caused by not addressing mental health and still walking around with that stigma that we've had on it since biblical times. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And that's why I think, I, that's why part of the reason I do what I do. And I like to hear real life stories, like stories of hope, stories of, I went through a 10 year addiction because of, my bipolar, you know, and I was, I was feeding something or, you know, if you're not bipolar and you just had the parents that beat you up and everything, you're feeding some hole of hurt inside of you. And then it becomes a physical thing. Like you said, you know, you, I, I, I did, I, well, for one, I didn't know it was not normal to drink at three years old. I was, I was the best bartender ever, but it, it felt good. It felt, it numbed every bit of pain, every bit of fear, every bit of everything. But then it becomes like, okay, where do I get it? I was lucky enough in that I didn't turn to drugs. I, I, I don't know how that happened. I just was fortunate. Um, mm. But regardless, it's, it's, there's so much stigma. I, I wish someone had asked me, you know, when I was, I always say this, I had 51 teachers and not one of them ever asked me about my home life, ever asked me about anything, but I'm sure they all knew. Right. You know, but there's this, that's why I love that you talk about the destigmatization because like even children, children should be able to be like, Hey, something's not right at home. Help me, you know, right. and there, it's just not there yet. But the more people that can be like, you know, you let's get you help. Let's get you help. Even though it's not you that's there, it's your mother or your father or whatever. Let's just get help because we need help. We so many dysfunction. That's why I kind of used to deal with just adult children of alcoholics because that's my story. My mom, my mom was drugs as well, but mm -hmm. the dysfunction, like you said, the homelessness, the poverty, the jobless, the people locked in their homes for months and months and months. And how many people are, you know, on the streets now that had jobs, that's mm -hmm. the kind of dysfunction that will turn someone, flip someone real quick. Right. Right. It, it'll take an underlying issue or an issue that's not as bad and just explode it. Yep. With a person. So, you know, and that's why if we if we can address the mental health on the front end, 
and really fortify our efforts and really destigmatize and treat it and have systems in place where people can have resources. Because this is really the most important thing in dealing with mental health is having resources. Yep. People having places where they can turn to, having ways to get their medication where they can't afford it. That's what I'm really working toward because I can't make people seek treatment. No. You know, and but what, what I can do is do whatever I can to make sure that should they choose to do so, they have a compassionate place. They have a place to go with their medicine. They have a place to talk to people that are going through what they're going through. And that's the best way I can figure to do what I do. Yeah. No, I love it. And I love the fact, like, for those of you out listening, out there listening, I mean, so many golden nuggets that George has given to us. But the biggest one for me is I love the buddy system. You've got to have someone, whether it's a family member, a friend, it's kind of like having an Al-Anon sponsor. <laughs> you know, you got to have someone that when you're going through those moods and when you're when you're having those swings and you're getting that feeling that depression or that manic or whatever it is you got to have a buddy system you got to have somebody you can call that understands that can talk you down right. talk you up whatever you need whatever you need yeah and you have to be careful who you surround yourself with especially coming out of addiction because i tell people if you if you're coming off addiction you need to move out that neighborhood i don't care what you got to do mm -hmm. you can't be you can't be in the same environment and think oh. you're not going to be uh, apt to relapse because things are going to happen that are going to make you want to relapse. I mean, I, I have, I've been uh, away from that six years and have not, but I removed myself from the environment and I started treating the issue that was underlying in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. but yeah, a buddy system and accountability, being accountable for yourself and what your part is in your mental illness, because in dealing with especially something like bipolar, we tend to say hurtful things when we're going through something, we tend to act irrationally. We tend to not always think things through. So you have to be accountable to that for yourself before you can deal with anybody else. Yeah. And just understand yeah. in, in any kind of recovery, whether it be mental, emotional, or, or, or substance related, you're going to lose relationships. You may not have a relationship with your mom after that because she may have enabled you. Uh, there are different dysfunctional dynamics, but you have to be conscious of the fact that you embarking upon recovery may mean that you may lose everyone in your life. I've lost several people. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. And that's know. a very hard part because it is, you have to, you have to get the toxicity yeah. out of your, you can't, you can't get better if it's surrounding you and it just keeps coming right. back and beating you down over and over. You got to get it out. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. And I mean, boundaries are one of the hardest things to start learning about when you're and for yourself. And I try to explain to people, the boundaries are for you. They're not to hurt those people. But if those people don't want to adhere by them, then maybe they might have to go. You know, go. And, they might be and sometimes that's the best thing. Yep. Everyone yep. is not meant to be in our lives forever. Some people we're only meant to know for a month. Yep. Some yep. people only five years. Some people only 15 years. It's not, it's not, you know, no, no one has a lifetime pass in our lives. Right. And we have to understand that, too. And we have to worry about uh, uh, changing our our sense of things in terms of attachment to people, attachment to things that causes us a lot of suffering. And that bleeds over into Buddhism, which is a spiritual component of dealing with mental health and addiction and things like that. So, uh, you, you you know, one thing you have to learn is relationships change. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not understand my father at 20 when I was 20. But now that I'm 45, I can see where he was at at 45. Right. Uh, in terms of me raising my son, I'm I push my son out the nest because of what he's dealing with. He needs to get out there at 19 and get to it. I don't have time to coddle him. He knows that because he's dealing with things that most people don't have to deal with. Right. But I have to, you know, you have to act differently. You have to think differently. 
and it's funny that I'm a diabetic as well as dealing with and have chronic health issues as, as well as dealing with, with bipolar because I'm used to having to manage my health in a certain way. So I think that's a benefit to me. But I want to teach that to other people. You know, manage when you take your meds, manage what you eat, do these things, do that. You know, and I really want to help people. That's what gives me joy. I have not made any money doing this for the past five or six years. Oh. I was homeless this time last year. Didn't I have oh, a wow. car this time last year? I was, but I kept working. I kept building my nonprofit. I kept going because I'm trying to get to a certain point for me personally, economically, to be honest, but at a point where I'm effective in helping as many people as possible. So that's what's really important to me. But I mean, like you said, the, there's nothing wrong with making money. So the more you make, the more you can help. The more people you mm -hmm. can help with, the more you have. So nothing wrong with that, you know? Right. <laughs> Absolutely right. nothing. And I had so to learn that because, like, when you run a nonprofit, the, the 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 element, and I tell other people this: when you run a nonprofit, the one element that people tend to kind of, uh, you know, not bring up is the fact it's still a business. Yeah. And we get wrapped up in the altruism of I have a nonprofit, but what's your what's your profit and loss look like? Those things are still evident. Yeah, and it took still me a while to learn that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I volunteer for um, a company here in Florida that's called uh, Life Recaptured, and they help um, tr human traffic victims, and they take them, oh, and they, cool. you know, yeah. keep them safe, and they get them doctors and mentor them and do all this stuff and. It's kind of the same thing. The the owner's like, yeah, I've been taking a paycheck in how many years? And I'm like, but think about if you paid yourself and you were all in, like what you could do, how big you could grow and expand when you're not stressed about you personally. Right. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes when we start nonprofits, we get so wrapped up in the mission and the and the and the altruism of it, we forget we still got to eat. Yeah. And I can just tell you, I mean, like I said, this time last year, I was homeless on the street. No one, nothing. Had a heart attack, still on the street. Had double pneumonia, still on the street. But I kept working my nonprofit, so that leads me to believe that as far as anything monetarily, what's 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 meant for me, I will have. Yeah. So I'm yeah. just going to focus on the work. I'm not going to ignore the fiduciary aspect, but I'm going to focus on the work and let whatever God has for me come to me. You come help enough people, and you will get what you you know. You help enough people, and you will get what you need. There's no doubt about that. He's not going to leave right. you stranded. That's for sure. Right. Um, it'll keep getting better for you. Well, thank you so much. I don't want to keep you on here. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> but you um, when, I do want you to just tell me for as someone who came out of a 10 year addiction, how did you do that? Did you go to rehab or did you just use I just used willpower? I was at I was at my lowest point. Wife had just left physical health. And I just said, I'm sick of myself. And I started looking in the mirror because at that point I hadn't been able to look myself in the mirror for about a couple of years, literally. That's how far I had fallen. But I started to be able to look myself in the mirror and deal with my issues and my part and why my relationships had gone to crap, why I was not in a position I need to be and dealt with George and why, what my culpability was. And I started to address those traumatic issues from my childhood. And once I did that, getting off the cocaine didn't become easier. It became simpler. There's a difference. Right. Yes. A few things are easy, but you can make just about anything simple. Yep. We need to simplify our lives, simplify how we live, how we think, and make them easy. It'll still be difficult, still be arduous. But if the simplicity is what's going to make it accessible and what's going to make it where you can really achieve that goal. So keep Amen. things simple. Don't overcomplicate your life. 
I love that because I tell people that all the time, you know, your healing is difficult, but it's simple. I say that all the time, the, the steps, the process, I can line out what you need to do at each, at each milestone and at each crossroads, just follow this little thing. But it's the, it's the emotional part of it that is difficult. So that's what I say. It's, it's hard, but it's simple. That's, that's, I love that you explain it that way. Cause I do that all the time. So, and then for the people listening, because I always say, and I'm going to ask you this question because I ask a lot of people that have come out of, you know, that have gone into recovery or whatever. Did you go to another addiction or were you far enough along in healing your childhood issues that you did not? Addicts never stop being addicts. Mm -hmm. They transpose that addiction to something hopefully more positive and beneficial. Okay. So I think my nonprofit is my new addiction. I think me serving people and trying to help people is my new addiction. But you'll never see an addict truly stop being an addict. They just may go to church. They just may start shopping a lot. They they might not be snorting the cocaine, but they're doing something else. And hopefully they found something productive and, and found something else to focus on that's going to bring them some benefit and enrichment in life. And that's the best way, I think, to treat addiction, too, is try to find things that, that person can be passionate about to transpose all their energy and effort and hurt into that's going to benefit them and hopefully help other people. Absolutely. I mean, they say, you know, any kind of addiction, you can't just, you can't cut it off. You have to replace it with something. So replace it with something good because a lot of people, you know, they stop doing cocaine, but now they're binge eating and then they stop binge eating and then they're gambling and then they stop gambling and then they're workaholics, which even though that sounds like, oh, that's a positive thing. No, it's still detrimental to your family, your friends, your relationships. So, yeah. yeah, So every time you try to, you know, you can't just cut something. You have to replace it. And like you said, hopefully it's something productive and good. And But no, I agree with you. And and try to deal with that wound on your heart that caused you to turn to it in the first place. Yep. No, I Because those wounds will never go away. The most we can hope for is the, but scars can be a beautiful thing because it shows you're a survivor. It shows that you heal from something. Absolutely. So wear your emotional scars. Don't, Don't sit up there and wear them like a badge of honor to make other people feel you know, and somehow inadequate because they didn't survive what you survived, but wear them as a way, as a testimony to show people, I did survive. You can too. Yep. Humbly, humbly wear them. Yes. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming. So if people want to reach out, I'm going to put all your links in the show notes and everything, but for the Meta Association, what is the best place to help reach out, question anything? Okay. Uh, You can reach us at 214-810-6518. Uh, if you need to talk to me or you have an advocacy case you need assistance on, I, I'm working a couple of those now personally. Uh, if you want to donate, uh, you can donate via Cash App at dollar sign Meta, M-E-T-T-A Association. Those are really needed because we're working on some really exciting programs where we need funding to help. Um, you can reach me at G Brooks, that's G-B-R-O-O-K-S at metaassociation.org. Or you can try me at 901-631-4300. So I'll provide you a list of all these contacts. And, and so we can, you know, hopefully uh, hopefully someone sees this and maybe I can help them in some sort of way, even if it's just by me having said something this morning. Uh, so that's my hope. So if one person is helped or feel encouraged, then I've, I've done my job. And I, I feel blessed to be able to do that every day. I feel like every time you talk, George, you help someone. <laughs> I hope. I- I just feel you have that in your nature. So I will put all those links and everything in there. And then one last question, and I always have my listeners um, get a piece of advice from you, words of wisdom, or something tangible to walk away with. Be patient with yourself, whether you are in recovery or not. Uh, Don't judge yourself by the car in the lane next to you. Look at how far you've gotten. Look at where you're going. Look over to see for perspective. Look over to get some clarity. 
you know, pay attention to what other people are doing so you stay current, but be patient with yourself and judge yourself to where you were yesterday. When I pray, the first thing I say is I thank the Lord for yesterday because not only did I make it through another day, I know I learned something that day that makes me a better person this day. So be patient with yourself, uh, be good to yourself and be good to other people. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much, George, for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank I could talk so to you much. all day. All right, me too. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Yeah. And for all the listeners out there, stop back in, tune back in, and we'll have more stories of hope and healing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. If this episode resonated with you or you think someone else could benefit from what you heard, why not share it with someone you care about? Let's heal from our past and take back control of our lives together. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to www.tammyvincent.com for a free chapter of my book, Surviving Alcoholic Parents. While you're there, be sure to catch my invigorating seminar, Awakening Your Authentic Self. Together, we will rewrite our stories and turn trials into triumphant smiles. Until next time, keep embracing your strength, keep being you, and know that you are more than enough. You are way more than enough right here, right now.